Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the CBS News Roundup ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Coming up, protest in support of Palestinian civilians. As Israel displays weapons it says belong to Hamas. Where they're hiding all of this equipment is in a hospital. Lawmakers avert a government shutdown. A great outcome for the American people. In the Kaleidoscope with Allison Keyes segment, the financial toll of elder care on families. There are huge out-of-pocket costs that are associated with that. I'm Allison Keyes in Washington. From the nation's capital where six police officers were hurt, to San Francisco's Bay Bridge, to South Korea, demonstrations supporting Palestinian civilians devastated by Israel's offensive against Hamas, which launched a terrorist attack on October 7th, but also in Israel. The families of Israeli hostages and thousands of supporters march, pressuring the government to secure their release of some 240 people. More now from CBS's Tina Krause. Friday prayers echo across a region reeling from war. Israel's defense minister says the next stage of battle has begun, signaling Israel's offensive in the northern Gaza Strip may move south. That's where Palestinian mother Holud Jarbu is taking refuge and struggling to buy warm clothes for her kids as winter approaches. The war-shattered streets of northern Gaza are empty, and Israel defense forces say they're making progress dismantling Hamas. The IDF showed what it says are Islamic Jihad rockets found at a militant base. And this is what Hamas is trying to hide from you. Israeli troops displayed weapons they say were found at the Al-Shifa hospital complex, which Israel and the U.S. believe Hamas used as a command center. RPGs, AK-47s, we see handcuffs. Other hospitals in Gaza are barely functioning, floors filled with patients, many very young. These are innocent children, this Palestinian man says. They're targeting children who didn't do anything wrong. While in the Israeli city of Modi'in, a heartbroken mother buries her 19-year-old daughter, IDF soldier Noah Marciano, who was found dead in Gaza this week alongside another hostage. Tina Krause, CBS News, London. 
Israeli military officials say one of the hostages was found in a building near Al-Shifa Hospital, the largest medical facility in Gaza. CBS's MTS Tayeb went into the hospital complex with a group of Israeli soldiers and explains what he saw. We should point out that when going on an embed with the Israeli military, they control what you can see, what you can do, and where you go. Uh, they did not have any say on the kind of reporting that we did while we were there, but there are restrictions when doing that. But what we saw was frankly extraordinary. On the drive through Gaza to the Al-Shifa hospital, it was devastation as far as the eye can see. I couldn't see a single building that was still intact. Remember, Gaza City was home to nearly 800,000 people, 800,000. It is now completely uninhabitable. But the one place there are still people in any number is the Al-Shifa Hospital, the healing hospital, if you want to translate it. And what we found was a place that was devastated and in very dire, dire condition. Earlier this week, a U.S. missile destroyer shot down another drone fired by an Iranian-backed group in Yemen. There were three more drone attacks against U.S. troops Friday. CBS's Holly Williams sat down for an exclusive interview with Iran's foreign minister to ask about that nation's involvement in the attacks. The U.S. says fighters backed by Iran have been attacking American forces in the Middle East with drones and rockets for weeks. Iran's foreign minister, Hussein Amir Abdullahian, told us his country is not responsible and denied any involvement in today's drone attack in the Red Sea. We really didn't want this crisis to expand. But the U.S. has been intensifying the war in Gaza by throwing its support behind Israel. It sounds like you're saying that Iran backs these groups around the Middle East, including the Houthis, including fighters in Iraq and Syria. But you bear no responsibility for what they do. These groups in Iraq and Syria that are attacking U.S. interests have made their own decisions. Iran is also a backer of Hamas. And the U.S. says that makes it complicit in the October 7th attacks on Israel. The minister told us the attacks were a response to 75 years of Israeli occupation. So are you saying that Hamas was justified in killing civilians, including children? As I said, we are opposed to killing women and children everywhere. It's a very simple question, Minister. Is it justified what Hamas did on October 7th? What Hamas did was based on its legitimate right to defend itself. The US and Iran both say they want to stop the Israel-Hamas war from spreading. But that's about all they agree on. Holly Williams, CBS News, Geneva, Switzerland. Back in the U.S., the holiday travel season is already starting and airports are warning people to get ready. Arrive early, especially if you are headed to the ticket counter, and get to your gate at least an hour before your departure time. WBZ-TV's Katrina Kincaid with more. Transportation officials gave an update on holiday travel for the Thanksgiving season and what people can expect when they go to see loved ones, especially what the best and worst times are to go. 
It is our goal and sincerest hope that we get everyone where they go as safely as humanly possible. Officials say the best time to leave before Thanksgiving are first thing in the morning or later at night after 6 p.m. They suggest leaving late Wednesday night or even first thing Thursday morning. They expect delays between 2 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Wednesday, but the transportation secretary says Tuesday will be the worst travel day before Thanksgiving. We wouldn't be surprised to see major congestion on I-93, I-95, and especially the Massachusetts Turnpike at any point during the day. When it comes to getting back home, they say expect delays Friday into late morning to early afternoon and middle of the day on Saturday. But Sunday is the worst. On Sunday, we expect there to be major, major delays the majority of the day starting as early as 10 a.m. Massport officials expect over a million people to travel through Logan Airport. They're suggesting taking the T to get there, who's increasing service from the 18th through the 26th. We have added additional service to support increased ridership during those periods when we know that people are traveling. State police say that they will have additional patrols on the roadways during the holidays, including focusing on drivers who are texting, speeding, and aggressively driving. I'm Michelle Wright at Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport, where airport officials say among the busiest travel days. For this Thanksgiving holiday time period, we are anticipating to screen just under 1.1 million travelers. The TSA's Robert Spinden says over the 16-day travel period, this is one of the busiest that they have seen. Coming up, averting a government shutdown. For now, that's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. It's harder to focus than ever these days. Thankfully. C4 has reinvented the energy drink game with C4 Smart Energy, the only energy drink clinically proven to provide enhanced mental focus, containing 200 milligram of natural caffeine, a blend of vitamins and zero sugar. It was formulated to support your well-being and help you feel your best, all while enhancing mental focus. From your brain to your body, C4 Smart Energy does it all and tastes amazing. Look for Smart Energy in the beverage aisle at your local Kroger, Albertsons, and Safeway grocery stores. See for Smart Energy. Stay focused. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. It was a contentious week on Capitol Hill, even though lawmakers passed bipartisan legislation to avoid a government shutdown. There was nearly a fistfight. We asked CBS's Nicole Killian to explain. Yeah, well, this is probably the best news to come out of Capitol Hill this week in the sense that there was a lot of angst and concern about the potential for a government shutdown, some uncertainty with a new speaker in the House, Mike Johnson. But they were able to clear this relatively quickly, even though he took a different approach, this two-step approach where government funding will be extended in two phases, once through January 19th and then again through February 2nd, with uh, some agencies being funded only up through that January 19th deadline others through February 2nd. And so that did pass overwhelmingly in the House with Democratic support. I would note it cleared pretty easily in the Senate as well. So everyone can have an enjoyable Christmas. And I've also got to ask you about the embattled George Santos, who got a pretty scathing report against him this week. 
Yeah, I mean, this is something that has been building up for some time. Obviously, with respect to Congressman George Santos, he was already facing a 23 count indictment to which he has pleaded not guilty. But the House Ethics Committee had also been conducting a review and finally released a highly anticipated report this week that really found a lot of uh, what they say was substantial evidence that the congressman may have violated the law, whether that was deceiving his donors, stealing blatantly from his campaign, uh, giving his campaign fictitious loans. All of this, uh, in addition to using some of that money for personal expenses, whether that was for luxury goods, whether that was for taking trips to Atlantic City or the Hamptons, getting Botox. So uh, this report uh, was quite scathing, so much so that many congressional members who did not vote to expel Congressman George Santos earlier this month now say that they will support a resolution to do so. That resolution just being filed Friday by the chair of the House Ethics Committee. And finally, we have to ask people standing on Capitol Hill urging other people to get their butts up and fight. What is going on? You know, your guess is as good as mine. I know some <laughs> folks were joking on the Hill, you know, what's in the water because it's all kind of unfolded uh, on one day with one incident occurring after the next. Obviously, you had that very contentious Senate hearing where we saw Oklahoma Senator Mark Wayne Mullen, who was a former MMA fighter, by the way, challenge the president of the Teamsters Union. And you saw Bernie Sanders have to wave his finger and intervene and interject, telling Mullen, you know, you stop, you're a U.S. senator uh, to over in the House where a former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy uh, got into a bit of a rift with a Tennessee Republican Tim Burchett, who uh, claims that McCarthy elbowed him in the kidneys. McCarthy denied that. He said he didn't kidney punch Burchett. And then, of course, you had in a House Oversight Committee hearing the chairman of that committee, James Comer, calling a Democratic member, Jared Moskowitz, it's a smurf. So it was one of those days that I haven't seen on Capitol Hill uh, and one that I think many hope we don't see more of. CBS's Nicole Killian. Thousands of Starbucks workers walked out across the nation Thursday holding a strike on Red Cap Day. WCBS-TV's Dave Carlin with more. We are fighting for fair wages. Are we ready? Yeah! This is being called the Red Cup Rebellion. Demonstrations on the day Starbucks gives away free reusable cups. Out here, instead of indoors working, was certified barista trainer Edwin Palmasolis. We just thought it'd be a great day to just make sure everyone's you know involved and we get a lot of support. We're doing it. The hand in the petition right now. Riley Fell is with the union Starbucks Workers United, delivering paperwork demanding better wages and schedules to managers. The petition was left on the counter as Fell rejoined the group outside. What do we want? The union's first successful vote was in Buffalo in late 2021, after which 368 stores joined, but still no contracts for the estimated 9,000 union members. The Starbucks workers and union leaders gathered outside this store alleged corporate stalling and retaliation. 
regarding tips and benefits, there definitely is retaliation there. Um, union stores are not allowed credit card tipping. Starbucks denied the claims of retaliation and recently announced 3% raises and other benefit changes for workers starting next year. A company spokesperson said we remain committed to working with all our partners and the company is ready to progress in-person negotiations with the unions certified to represent partners. At the rally, New York City public advocate Jumani Williams. Not something that you want to break the company, but you want to share in, in the money and, and the, the, the gains that are happening. And New York State Senator Jessica Ramos. Workers have to organize! This was the second year in a row these scenes played out in front of Starbucks stores on Red Cup Giveaway Day. Good news for your pocket this Thanksgiving in some ways, but other staples are pretty pricey. CBS's Jolene Kent with details. It's down to the wire at Gunthorpe Farms in LaGrange, Indiana. They're packing up the turkeys they've raised and shipping them out for Thanksgiving. You're in high season right now. Right. Yep. It's like yeah, crunch it's, time. Yeah, it's crunch time. Greg Gunthorpe says inflation just won't quit, hitting the farm's bottom line. Oh, inflation has drastically impacted, uh, you know, our cost of production. And shoppers continue to battle inflation, too. While turkey prices sank 16% since last year, many other Thanksgiving staples are more expensive again this year. Canned cranberries will cost 60% more. Canned pumpkin prices have spiked 30%. And russet potatoes are up 14%. It's super expensive, and I'm sharing the cost with some of my siblings. Walmart is now promising to remove inflation by cutting prices on holiday favorites. Aldi slashed prices on more than 70 of the most popular Turkey Day items by up to 50 percent. Would you say this is the most aggressive you've cut prices for Thanksgiving ever? This, without a doubt. Now here's a thing you never thought you'd hear. CBS's Monica Ricks. It's still unclear if he got hacked, but Snoop Dogg says he's quitting smoke. Yeah, that's Snoop Dogg. The rapper made the announcement on social media this week without much context, but said after talking to his family, he decided to, quote, give up smoke. This is the same guy who's admitted he smoked dozens of blunts a day by someone he hired specifically to roll them. That's his J-O-B, his occupation. On his resume, it say, what do you do? I'm a blunt roller. I roll for P-B-R, Snoop. P-B-R, professional <laughs> blunt roller. The same guy who has a pot product line, cooks weed-infused food with Martha Stewart, and even won a Cannabis Lifetime Achievement Award for his impact on the marijuana industry back in 2020. Mm. It goes without saying, fans are still very shocked and confused. After all, Snoop's been essentially synonymous with smoking weed since kickstarting his career in the early 90s. Monica Ricks, CBS News. Coming up, terrifying violence in Haiti. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. A brazen attack on a hospital in Haiti's capital highlights the increasing power of gangs there since the 2021 assassination of that nation's president. But it was also a victory for police who rescued dozens after the entire hospital had to be evacuated under gunfire. 
Violence has soared in Haiti this week as heavily armed gang members surrounded the Fontaine Hospital in the capital of Port-au-Prince, trapping patients, including 40 children and newborns, who police later rescued. But the relief felt when the UN authorized an international force to Haiti to help quell gang violence has evaporated since the 1,000-person force to be sent from Kenya is being blocked in their court. Haitian journalist and broadcaster Michelle Montas, who ran a popular Haitian radio program with her husband, Jean-Dominique, for 30 years in Tully was assassinated, says Haiti needs help. Heavily armed men from the G9 gang stormed the hospital. It is too early to know how many people have died in the latest confrontation between the police and gang members or between the two largest gang coalitions vying for the control of Cité Soleil. The fighting has intensified since one gang leader was killed on Monday. The hospital has been a lifeline for the slum where civilians are routinely killed, kidnapped or raped. The security situation in Haiti has further deteriorated this week in the capital city where 80% of the neighborhoods have been controlled by gangs for the last year. Haiti's Foreign Minister Jean-Victor Genéou, speaking through a translator, welcomed the UN action last month to get a force to help the Haitian police. More than just a simple vote. This is in fact an expression of solidarity with a population in distress. But Amy Wilenz, author of Haiti Since Duvalier and a professor at the University of California at Irvine, is more skeptical about what a force could do. Without a real sense of policing in Haiti by Haitian police, without a, an adequate justice system, it's very hard to make sure that people like the Kenyan police, who don't have that great a reputation in Kenya, will really be doing a good job in Haiti. Plus, it's only a thousand people. I, I can't imagine what kind of arms they would have to be given in order for it to work. And I just think it could lead to further chaos. The arguments in the Kenyan parliament were very interesting about why this is not a great idea and some called it a suicide mission. Haiti's gangs are getting more brazen and there are few viable options. Pamela Falk, CBS News at the United Nations. Terror of a different sort in the Bahamas as passengers fled a sinking ferry. One U.S. tourist died. Our boat is sinking. A trip to paradise turned into a battle for survival. For more than 100 passengers aboard a double-decker ferry in the Bahamas. Most were able to swim to safety as nearby vessels moved in to rescue them. But Bahamian authorities later confirmed a woman in her 70s from Broomfield, Colorado, was pulled from the water unconscious and later pronounced dead. It's not immediately clear how she died. Two others were taken to a medical facility. Bahamian police said the ferry was traveling from Paradise Island to Blue Lagoon Island, a tourist destination northeast of the capital, Nassau. The boat started taking on water when it encountered rough waves. It was absolute chaos. Emma Hess was on the boat with her husband and their two young children. She says she donned a life jacket and swam to safety with their two-year-old wrapped around her neck. The waves were super choppy and splashing me in the face, and I'm not a strong swimmer at all, and I have asthma and, and weak lungs, so that's, that's the moment that I was scared. An investigation is underway into what caused the disaster. Elaine Quijano, CBS News. November is Diabetes Awareness Month, and among the many challenges for those with that illness are vision problems. But awareness and new treatment methods are improving quality of life. CBS's Naomi Ruckham has one woman's story and her hope for the future. Donna Brathwaite was diagnosed with diabetes after pregnancy more than two decades ago. But it wasn't until 2020 that she noticed her vision starting to change. I started to see like spots. My vision was cloudy and scary. 
She was quickly referred to Dr. Yasha Modi, Associate Professor of Ophthalmology at NYU Grossman School of Medicine. Her diagnosis, an advanced form of diabetic retinopathy, a condition that can lead to severe vision impairment and even blindness if left untreated. She had something called proliferative diabetic retinopathy, had bleeding in the eyes, and had diabetic macular edema. Diabetic retinopathy affects nearly 40% of patients with type 2 diabetes, and rates of follow-up are lower for racial minorities. When caught in time and with laser treatments and injections, patients like Donna can retain their eyesight. The crazy part about diabetic retinopathy is it's entirely preventable. And I tell all of my patients, if you just show up every single time that I'm asking you to show up, you will never go blind from diabetic retinopathy. Telemedicine is now an important tool in helping diabetics who face vision impairment. Remote imaging can help screen for signs, even when patients can't make it in to visit with their doctor. Donna makes her appointments her priority. The results have been phenomenal. She hopes other diabetics can see themselves in her story and share her outlook on life. Naomi Rockham, CBS News. The boom in renewable energy has really hurt the coal industry. Half of its jobs have vanished in the last 10 years. But in our Eye on America series, CBS's Mark Strassman tells us about a training program that restores both labor and land. In West Virginia's haulers, deep in Appalachia, jobless coal miners now find a seam of hope. I wasn't 100% sure what I was going to do. A mine laid off James Dameron two years ago. I didn't know I didn't want to go back in the deep mines. Instead, Dameron found Coalfield Development and its incoming CEO, Jacob Israel Hanna. Hope is only as good as what it means to put food on the table. The program's a community-based nonprofit, teaching a dozen job skills and personal ones. Construction, agriculture, solar installation. They're going through this process here. for Someone can get paid up to three years to learn all of them. That's a good deal. We want to make sure that you have all the tools in your toolkit to know when you do interview with an employer, here's the things that you lay out that you've learned. It's working. Training more than 2,500 people, creating 800 new jobs and 72 new businesses. A program delivering with roughly $20 million in federal grants. Instead of waiting around for something to happen, we're trying to generate our own hope. This isn't pie in the sky. This is nitty gritty. Meeting real needs where they're at. Stephen Spry is a grad. He's helping reclaim an abandoned strip mine, turning throwaway land into lush land. Now I've kind of got a career out of just, I can weld, I can farm, I can run excavators. You can always find a a job doing something. Yeah, absolutely. With a program, James Dameron now works only above ground. That was a big part of my identity, was being a coal miner. And leaving that, I kind of had to find myself again, I guess. And now you have. Absolutely have. Appalachia is mining something new. Options. For Ion America, Mark Strassman, Mingo County, West Virginia. Coming up in the Kaleidoscope with Allison Keys segment, the staggering cost of elder care. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. 
like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Welcome to the Kaleidoscope with Allison Key segment where every week we discuss issues including income inequality. Millions of families across the nation are facing horrific choices as they try to care for elderly family members, some of whom are dealing with health challenges, ranging from strokes to dementia. A KFF health survey finds that most people 50 and older haven't saved any money for long-term care, which leaves those who need that care at risk of dying broke. We asked Rita Shula, Senior Director for Caregiving with AARP's Public Policy Institute, how bad things are out there. We really recognize how hard it is for family caregivers across the country who are really spending billions of dollars um, sending uh, sending um, the, those that they're caring for uh, into nursing homes, oftentimes because they don't have access to quality care um, in their own communities. Um, And even if they are able to keep individuals at home in community, there are huge out-of-pocket costs that are associated with that. And so family caregivers um, are really struggling to figure out a way to make all of this work um, while trying to do the best to care for the individuals, whether they're parents, um, other relatives or friends. I saw somewhere a stat that said something like 8 million people age 65 and over report that they have dementia or difficulty feeding and bathing themselves, and at least 3 million of them have no help. Is it is it that bad out there? Absolutely. Um, we recognize, especially with individuals, and, and, and individuals are getting it at all ends. So we have high numbers of those um, with varying types of dementia, Um, that uh, families are trying to care for, as well as with other other conditions. And it's really, you know, critical as we look at this, what does that care mean? Oftentimes as family caregivers, um, we do it under obligation, we do it under choice, um, we do it because it's just something that we do, but we go into it not knowing exactly what that cost is going to look like for us the cost of opportunity, um, the time cost, as well as the out-of-pocket financial costs. Um, We know that family caregivers, on average, are spending almost $7,200 out of their pocket. And when we look at Black and Hispanic Latino family caregivers, those numbers only go up. Um, If someone is caring for someone with dementia, that can boost that out-of-pocket cost to nearly $9,000. And when you think about it, these are really conservative estimates on those costs. I wonder, are you seeing or hearing of a difference between the situation for people in cities and the people in smaller towns or those in even more far-flung areas? 
You know, that's a really good question. We hear that a lot. I think that the challenges can differ um, depending on where you live. Uh, clearly, uh, when you're in an urban area, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, you have access to better health care. You have more resources that are available um, right within your community. Um, but however, when you look in rural communities, there isn't always that access. And so you have family caregivers that are really desperate for supports um, to really be able to care for individuals, oftentimes just to get to a medical center to receive uh, proper health care. You're talking about somebody having to drive an hour or more. And then when you're talking about community um, and resources that are available in community, there tends to be a dearth of those resources available in rural communities. And even when there are resources, say there is telehealth or there are other kind of virtual connections to be able to assist family caregivers, what we see in rural communities is that because of lack of access to broadband um, and other technology resources, they can't even do that. I wonder if you think this is a government problem, as in there's no long-term care system, right, in the U.S., or not a full one. It seems like everything is a bit patchwork. It's very patchwork. I, I appreciate that comment. I think that Clearly, the long-term care system is in need of dire improvement. Um, we really would love to focus on and have really begun a national conversation um, around long-term care. There's a lot of opportunity. Let's look at it from a place of opportunity um, that the baseline is pretty low right now in terms of the supports and services that really are available. And so if we're looking at it from a national perspective around long-term care, looking at ways in which we can be innovative to really enhance what we have um, and really develop new things. And these kind of innovations really need to focus on allowing caregivers and those that they care for choice in how they want to age, what long-term care they want to receive, as well as quality and affordability. It's really important that whatever we create um, and as we build this system, that it really recognizes the varying needs across socioeconomic uh, structure, across um, uh, race, ethnicity, geography, um, that there are multiple populations that need to be served and that any solutions need to be built in to support all. I'm curious, what the labor shortage, right? I mean, my parents are elderly. My dad was just in the hospital. And what used to be one of the best hospitals in that particular city is now so short-staffed, it's terrifying. And I, I feel like assisted living facilities and nursing homes are in the same straits, right? Yes, we are clearly seeing, and, and I think this has been happening even prior to the pandemic, but the pandemic really showed a light on um, how the workforce is really suffering, the paid long-term care workforce in particular. And what happens um, with the shortage in the workforce and the paid workforce is then that care now shifts to family caregivers. And these are unpaid family caregivers. Um, at ARP earlier this year, we released 
uh, a figure that said that the economic value of unpaid caregiver work in 2021 was $600 billion. So think about all of the savings that that the work, the unpaid work these family caregivers are providing um, is saving the system, is saving the government. And so when we look at issues, as you just raised, around the paid long-term care workforce, it's really critical that that is one of the solutions um, that we really seek to build on um, in order to better support family caregivers and get older adults the support and care that they need and desire where they want it. Let me just ask you one more. Do you have any suggestions for caregivers that are just at the end of their rope? I mean, they're out of money. They are exhausted. They're spending 13-hour days running family members back and forth to medical appointments. Where, where do they turn for support? You know, there are a number of areas that uh, family caregivers can really reach out to. I think the first thing is that family caregivers should understand it really is okay to ask for help. That can be one of the biggest impediments to receiving additional supports is that so many times families family caregivers in particular, uh, really feel that by asking for help, it's an admission that they're failing and that is not the case at all. And so we really encourage family members um, to reach out in their local communities. There are um, entities called area agencies on aging within their communities. Um, Often, and we're seeing this increasingly, that uh, 60% of family caregivers work. And so employers are increasingly seeing the need to support their working family caregivers. So reaching out to your employer and saying, you know, this is an issue that I am living with right now and I need more support. And oftentimes we will see that. I think it's also important for family caregivers to really be better informed on what their care options are, and potential payment uh, sources that can really support them. We are seeing at the state level, um, uh, and ARP advocates for this, um, state uh, caregiver tax credits that really help offset some of these out-of-pocket costs. And so while there are definitely um, a number of issues and individuals, for lack of better words, really are going broke, Um, providing this care. There are some resources, but as a country, we absolutely have to do better in supporting caregivers. Can I raise one more point? Sure. I just wanted to raise the point around sandwich generation caregivers. I think very often when we think about caregiving, we think about an individual who is caring for one generation, so caring for a parent or an older relative. But increasingly, we're seeing individuals, and they they are really getting um, slammed uh, financially, that are caring for younger children while also caring for an older relative or friend. And that's an area um, that we really need to look at, um, you know, from all standpoints, whether it's private sector, through government programs, etc. That's Rita Shula with AARP. Coming up, a prolific songwriter rocks hard. That's next in the CBS News Weekend Roundup. 
on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. Not all schools have that whole traditional desk blackboards and chalk thing going on. In the woods of southwest Michigan, there's a Christian private school that takes a different approach. WSB-TV's Kristen Bean takes us there. This is not your ordinary school. I'm taking all the fat and muscle off of the beaver this is Cottage Forest School. They have academics in the morning, and then the afternoons are basically free. They build forts, they explore, they tan beaver hides. Like you see, they they learn survival skills. Melissa Morgan founded Cottage Forest School, where the kids learn all the traditional academic subjects, but they do it mostly in the woods. Morgan modeled the school after the forest school movement in Europe. Research shows that children who learn outdoors actually do better academically than children who are in a traditional school. Since Morgan opened the school seven years ago out of her rural Berrien Springs area home, enrollment has exploded. Every year we just had people approaching us, coming to us, calling us, uh, yeah, just saying, can you take my child. We know about what you're doing. We love the idea, the concept, the philosophy. Now there are 50 children enrolled in kindergarten through eighth grade with a long waiting list of families. Morgan says the biggest boom in enrollment came amid the pandemic. They saw the homework, they saw the assignments, all the online stuff, and they thought, wow, you know, my kids, I wish they could get outside more. We are seeing another generation of parents now with small children that are like, what are the alternatives? Mm -hmm. You know, I can't homeschool or I don't want to homeschool, but I want that environment and I want that option. The National Center for Education Statistics shows nationally in the first year of the coronavirus pandemic, total public school enrollment dropped by 3%. In Michigan specifically, over the past 10 years, enrollment in public schools has dropped by 9%. What is less clear is where families are going. The latest year for which private school enrollment data and homeschooling numbers are available is 2019. But in 2019, a large majority of parents said they chose to homeschool because they had concerns about their local school. At Cottage Forest School, teachers say the pandemic pushed a lot of families to begin looking for new options. That is one reason is that people we're forced to become aware of the situation of what's happening in traditional schools. It's just um, a system that needs to be revisited and looked at and say, is, are, are we keeping up with, is this how children still need to learn? And here at Cottage Forest School, the main way children are learning is through nature. And so it's great if communities can have these kind of options for alternative education for families because you know, traditional school is great for some kids and it works and they love it. And it's just not the fit for other kids. For Morgan, that means she's trying to find ways to grow while keeping the forest school philosophy at its root. That's our challenge now. It's not attracting students, it's who do we take? She hopes her tiny school in the woods continues to shape the lives of students and give them an appreciation for nature, a love of learning, and a curiosity about the world outside of a classroom. WSBT-TV's Kristen Bean. It's that time of year where you need to be very skeptical about cons. CBS's Michael George reports Amazon is warning about two new scams targeting shoppers. Amazon handles millions of purchases during the holiday season, and con artists are trying to take advantage. 
The company says scammers pretending to be Amazon are sending out emails with an attachment warning your account will be suspended or put on hold in order to try to get your login credentials or payment information. And some Prime members are receiving fake texts, calls, and emails claiming there's a membership issue that requires payment or bank information. And so far this year, we've taken down over 45,000 websites, taken down over 15,000 phone numbers uh, that bad actors had been using. These Amazon scams are just the latest tactics cybercriminals are using to target shoppers this time of year. The FBI says 12,000 Americans reported losing money during last year's holiday shopping season. Those scams include social media posts offering gift cards, online surveys designed to steal personal information, and fake messages advertising hard-to-find items. Finally, one person who truly deserves the term icon. Dolly Parton, who sold over 100 million records, topped the charts in country and pop music, is taking on the genre of rock. Plus, the 77-year-old manga star has a new book out called Behind the Seams, looking at her incredible style over her 60-year career. She sat down in Nashville with Evening News anchor Nora O'Donnell. In my coat of many colors, mama made for me. The queen of country has gone rock and roll. I don't know what to think about this. I'm a rock star. Her new album, appropriately named Rockstar, is her first in the genre. And you have done pop, bluegrass, and now a rock album. So I'd always loved it, but I'm, I'm from the country, and country music was my, you know, my livelihood. But my husband is a huge rock and roll fan, and I used to think that I would do a rock album someday, and then the time went on, I started getting older, and I thought, oh, that'd be a joke now. And then I thought, well, timing's everything. So I decided I'm going to do that rock and roll album. The album features epic collaborations with musicians like The Beatles and Stevie Nicks. And there are nine original tracks from the prolific songwriter. Let's talk about World on Fire. That's a political message that I don't always detect from you. Well, actually, the... I didn't think of that as political as much as I was thinking of it as trying to save our asses. Save our? At our butts. <laughs> anyway, that's one of the lines. It was more about just all the things that's going on in the whole wide world. I thought, why are people not thinking about what we're doing to each other and to this world, the only world we've got to live in? Just like the first line of that says, I'm not one for speaking out much, but that don't mean I don't stay in touch. Mm -hmm. And I do. I'm in touch and I worry and I pray and I think, what all can I do? So we all need to do things in, in our own way to try to make a change. A change in more than tune she hopes to continue to bring the world. I wake up with new dreams every day. I'm always dreaming. I'm always doing, and I hope to do that till the day I die, which I hope is a long time from now. <laughs> Nora O'Donnell, CBS News. That's it for the weekend roundup. Thanks for listening. We want to get your feedback. Send us your thoughts and story ideas to Weekend Roundup at CBSNews.com. As always, you can find the program online on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Sarah Fishman is the technical supervisor, and Alan Peng provides production assistance. Tara Lipinski is the executive producer. Have a great week. Allison Keys, CBS News.
If you like CBS News Roundup, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, it's Stephen Colbert, and I'm here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is the podcast of The Late Show with me, Stephen Colbert. And I'm here with my uh, producer of the podcast, Becca. Hi, Becca. Hi, Stephen. And how long have you been the, the producer of this? We've been doing this for two years now. Okay. And and what is it like to attempt to uh, get feedback from me about the podcast? Be honest about how quickly I respond to emails. You actually respond to emails surprisingly fast. Really? I, I think you might be the only person I respond to <laughs> I respond to quickly. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. I expected I expected you to lay into me. Well, this was over the strike period. Oh, I had time. Yeah. See, that, that, does, that doesn't count. <laughs> Sure, I responded to everything because responding to you, putting reruns up on the podcast, was like a form of employment. Yeah. And I felt like I had something to get up for every yeah. day. So thank you for that. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.